Hello and welcome to the THCC podcast. Thank you for joining us. At THCC, we are a vibrant, multicultural and multi-generational church at the heart of East London in Tower Hamlets. And we gather every Sunday to worship God, learn more from the Bible and have fellowship with one another. Our passion and desire is to see the community around us to be changed by the good news of Jesus Christ. Now it's time for this week's sermon and we pray that this message you're about to hear would be a real encouragement for you in your journey with Jesus. Good. Now this passage today is a long one. So what we're going to do is actually we're going to split it up into some chunks and at various points some of my friends are going to come up and read some of those chunks but I thought I'd kick us off with the first one. So we're in 1 Corinthians 15, which means we've got one chapter to go, which I think Luke is finishing off for us next week. Amazing. Luke's going to bring it home. But today we're going to look at the whole of chapter 15. So I'm going to start and read us verses 1 to 11. Let's hear about this gospel of grace. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand By this gospel, you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. So here we've got, if you ever wanted it, if you wanted a summary, then here we've got it. These are the fundamentals of the gospel. The fundamental elements of of the message, of the good news about Jesus Christ. So here, Paul tells us what the gospel is, what's like the content of the gospel, what are the facts. And he also tells us who that gospel came to, and we'll see in a minute why that is so important. In verse 2, Paul says that salvation is through this gospel. So that's why we're going to pay attention to what the gospel is. What are those fundamentals? What are those those tangible things in history that Paul is saying are the contents of this gospel? Firstly, Christ died for our sins. In verse 3 it says that. Christ died. There are some who claim that that's not true. Some say that um, he was taken down from the cross before he was really dead. There's absolutely no evidence of that anywhere. That is just a claim that people are making up because it supports other things that they want to say. But all the evidence of the time is that people who were crucified really did die. 
And in the accounts of those who witnessed the death of Jesus, there's a lot of evidence that confirms that he died. Blood and water flowed out of his side. In fact, they normally would break the bones of people that that were dying in crucifixion to kind of speed that up. But when they got to Jesus, he was already dead. They didn't need to do that. Christ died. And not only did he die, but he died for our sins. And that's where it starts to get a bit different because many people have died. We're going to actually talk quite a lot about death today because we we live in, in the reality of that all the time. It's very appropriate that this is Remembrance Sunday. Many have died. But Christ's death was for something. It was for our sins. Christ's death was for our sins. He did it for a purpose. It happened for a purpose. It was pre-planned. And it set us free. And, you know, we haven't got time to go into all the, the whys and the mechanisms of that this morning. But if that's kind of your first point of going, oh, hang on, what does that mean? Then that's going to be the most important thing for us to talk about after, for you to go away and find out more about that death. It wasn't meaningless. It was for our sins. And secondly, he says, it was according to scriptures. So Paul was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. All the first followers of Jesus were Jews. And they were steeped in the Jewish scriptures, in the scriptures of Israel. And what Paul's saying here is that this death, Jesus' death on behalf of us for our sins, was foretold in those scriptures. Christ died according to the scriptures. It wasn't random, it wasn't an accident, it wasn't, you know, the triumph of Rome, even though it might have felt like that to those soldiers. But it was according to the scriptures. God had said it, and so it happened. And it happened in the way that God had said as well. And again, I would love to talk to you so much more about that. There are so many different elements of the death of Jesus that conform to what had been told in scriptures. We, we're not going to focus on that this morning, but again, that's essential. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What else do we know? He was buried. All the gospel accounts emphasize the burial of Jesus. He didn't just die, but he was buried. He was put in a tomb, and it was a new tomb. No one had ever been in it before. And a great heavy stone was rolled in front of that tomb and sealed. He was buried. He was definitely dead and definitely buried. That's what Paul's saying. And then he was raised on the third day. And again, according to the scriptures. And he might be thinking here of Psalm 16, verse 10, of the story of Jonah of all the other scriptures that spoke about one who would be injured and harmed and killed on our behalf, but who would then come to life. So again, the resurrection of Christ wasn't some random surprise, even though it somehow seemed to take almost everyone there by surprise, but actually it was according to the scriptures. And then he appeared, and then we have a list of the people that he appeared to there, verses 6 to 8 to Cephas, which was another name for Peter, to the twelve, to over 500 brothers and sisters, to James, to all the apostles, and to Paul. So we have those facts about what happened. And why do those matter? Well, firstly, I'm using the word facts this morning a lot, but the truth is not everyone believes all of those things that I've just said. 
And, and if we don't believe those things are true, then none of the rest of it makes any sense. And we're going to look at that in a minute. If Jesus didn't really die, then our sin isn't dealt with. If, if Jesus didn't raise, we're going to go on to see how futile all of this is. So the question of whether those things are true is the essential question for us. Do, do we believe that those things are true? And, and you know, that's not, it's not about saying, oh, you know, try and believe, oh, just conjure it up inside you. If you don't know what you think about these things, then you need to investigate that. Don't just believe it because I'm saying it. Who am I? <laughs> you don't even know me. But there's evidence for these claims. There's evidence that these things happened in history. One of the most powerful pieces of evidence is that at that time, there were all kinds of figures who would come along and say, here I am, I'm the Messiah. And they would gather a band of people around them and they would take on Rome and one of them even ruled for a few years and it was all going really well. And then they would die. And that was that. And occasionally, maybe someone else in their family would, would take on and kind of lead that group of people. But there was never anywhere else any suggestion that that figure had died and risen again, other than Jesus. And the followers of Jesus, they died for this. This list of facts here that we, you know, that I can just read so openly here in this room. Those people that Paul lists, the ones who saw the risen Jesus, many of them died because they wouldn't shut up about what they'd seen. And maybe you want to believe that they didn't really see it. Maybe you want to believe they saw a hallucination. But what you can't say is that they didn't believe it, because why would they die for something they knew wasn't true? These, these facts, they matter. And if we're not sure about them, then that's a really good place to start to investigate, did these things really happen? Did he really die? Was he really buried? Did he rise again? Did he appear to these people? The facts really matter. This is not just a spiritual story, like a nice myth that represents some things. This is about stuff that happened in the world that had an impact and that still has an impact and means everything. But the facts, in and of themselves, they're not enough. I want us to think for a minute about who this gospel came to, who it came through. What does Paul tell us? In verse 3, he says, What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. So Paul's not saying, like, here I am, guys, I've got this new religion, and let me tell you about it. What he's actually saying there is, you know, someone told me, and I'm telling you. Someone told me, and I'm telling you. And in case we're sort of still tempted to think this is the Paul show, let's read how Paul describes himself in verse 9. The least of the apostles don't even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So this guy, Paul, who is really admirable in so many ways, and he writes this eloquent letter that we're reading 2,000 years later, he knows that it's not really about him. I'm the least of the apostles. I don't even deserve to be called one. Because there's no other gospel, there's no other thing that anyone can stand on other than the truth about Jesus. 
Those facts that we talked about, they're what, they're what we stand on, they're what Paul stands on. And only that, not himself, not his own record. In fact, if he was standing on his own record, he'd be nowhere near the church. Because he was part of killing, rounding up and killing Christians. But he stands on the gospel. And so instead of being outside, he's inside, ministering. Those facts of that story, they don't save us in and of themselves. We're saved by the grace of God. That same basis that Paul stands on is the only basis that I can stand on. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again on the third day. He appeared to so many. And by the grace of God, that means that we can be free. We can be saved. We have a future. There's no other way. So let's look at the seven ifs, verses 12 to 19. Let's read on together. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, We're then found to be false witnesses about God. For we've testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who've fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ... We are of all people most to be pitied. There's no hiding here. Paul is really honest, and we need to be really honest, that if Christ was not raised from the dead, this whole thing is futile. There is no hope for any of us. The whole of Christianity is just a waste of time and energy if Christ was not raised, if that's not true. And we don't, need to, we don't need to hide from that. That is the case. And Paul lays it out, and he goes seven different ways he kind of makes that point. No resurrection of Christ means no resurrection for us. And in that case, what is all this for? These days, you can find people who will say that they're Christians who don't believe that Christ was raised. And I, I don't really see how. It's an essential part of Christian belief. You know, to be a Christian, it doesn't mean that you have to believe like a list of 700 things and memorize them all. And it's not about that. It's not like an exam you have to pass. But there are some really core beliefs, and, and Paul's laid them out for us, that core belief that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he rose again he appeared those things are I don't think you can be a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection and and Paul says why there if only for this life verse 19 if only for this life we have hope in Christ we are of all people most to be pitied if there's no resurrection no resurrection of Christ no resurrection of us then there's no such thing as Christian hope But on the flip side, if there is a resurrection, if Christ was raised, if we're going to be raised, then that is our hope. 
then for us, death is just falling asleep. We see that three times in this passage, verse 6, verse 18, verse 51. Christians who have died are described as having fallen asleep. And that language, that idea, Paul gets it from Jesus himself. When Jesus raised people from the dead, sometimes he would say things like, you know, Lazarus is sleeping, let's go wake him up, guys. Or your little girl is just sleeping when she was cold and the mourners had gathered. Now, when someone's asleep, we can't interact with them. Are there any sleep talkers or walkers here? Yep, okay, me and Adele, cool, yep. (laughs) I've sleepwalked and sleep talked all my life. It's not as bad now as it was when I was a kid. But, you know, I'd wake up in the morning and my parents would kind of tell me about the things I'd done and, and the, yeah, the strange appearances at their door of this weird little child. They couldn't interact with me. They could kind of try and like nudge me back up the stairs to bed, but you know, you can't interact with a sleeping person. We know that. And and death is a separation. Even if we're gonna view it in this way as sleeping, it's still a separation and there's still there's still a devastation in that. I know that many of us have been bereaved. And that separation, that absence, that distance is is real. We can't talk to those people anymore. And in fact, we we really shouldn't try, actually. But it's just like sleep, because it's temporary. And that person isn't lost forever. Not a permanent rupture, but a temporary one. If we're going to come and read our next section, to give you a bit of a break from my voice. Verses 20 to 28. Christ victorious, already and not yet. Thank you. Um, I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20 to 28. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For us in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But, but each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God will be made, so that God may be in all, may be all in all, sorry, amen. Thank you. So in this section, Paul gives us an image of Jesus going ahead of us to somewhere that we couldn't go so that we can go after him. I wonder if anyone can recognize this plant that we're going to have on the screen now. Anyone know what that is? Any ideas? Yes, Johnny. Well done, Johnny. That is a stinging nettle. 
And um, if it had big white flowers, it would be a false nettle, and those are fine. These ones are bad ones, and they hurt. And I once rolled into a patch of stinging nettles in my, I think, second and last ever attempt at rugby. And I had to have a day off work, because I was so allergic. So this is a stinging nettle. I hate them. They're evil. Tim and I like to go on walks in the country. Uh, it's one of our ways of relaxing. And um, we've a few times got ourselves in situations where we kind of go, we're going on this walk and there's a meant to be a path and we just get to a place where it's just full of nettles and there's no way through. And I think I've got a picture of one of our walks we went on in Derbyshire. So you can see all this greenery is nettles, right? And I'm super allergic. So what tends to happen is Tim kind of gets tooled up and puts on full waterproofs and gets several big sticks and he goes through and he bashes a path through the nettles and he tramples on them and then I kind of get to walk through behind him in relative safety. And this is really helpful. So I wanted to share this with us because I think the idea of first fruits, maybe, you know, most of us here, we're not farmers. I've never been a farmer and I don't know if any of you have. So we're maybe not that familiar with it. So I wanted us to just think about what it means for someone to kind of go ahead of us, to be the first so that we can follow. And Jesus goes ahead of us. He, he walks a path that we can't tread, but because he walks it, we can. I cannot raise myself from the dead. I have no way to be resurrected if I'm dead. But Jesus said, actually, that he had the authority to lay down his life and to take it back up again. And Jesus was raised from the dead. And so because of that, he's made a way for us to be raised. He's made a path through the nettles that we can't get through so that we can, because he's done it first. And, you know, in verses 25 and 28, we can see that there's a sense in which this is already It's already happened. But there's also a sense in which it's not yet. Not yet. Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And that hasn't all yet happened. We live in that gap between the already and the not yet. And here now, in this passage, you know, we've looked at the past, we've looked at what happened, we've looked at how important that is, what, you know, how if the resurrection isn't real, then what that means for our faith, which is basically it's nothing. And now we start to look at the future. Verse 24, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he's destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. And in verse 26, we read that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we're going to come back to that later on, the idea that death is going to be destroyed. And what that means, and again, what an appropriate day for us to be looking at that. So now Collins is going to come and read our next bit. And we're going to look at verses 29 to 34, facing a living death because we know that the dead will live. Twenty-nine. Now, if there is no resurrection... What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus, 
with no more than human hopes. What have I gained if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. For there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. Amen. So just quickly to deal with the whole baptism for the dead thing. I, I've never been to a baptism for the dead. Uh, it's not really something we do now. And it, it probably seems quite odd to you. It definitely feels odd to me. I don't think we need to spend loads of time on that. Paul doesn't spend loads of time on it. It's like a one-sentence point and then he moves on. It's interesting that he doesn't condemn it. He doesn't say this is a terrible thing that these bad people are doing. And he's very able to say that when he needs to. But I think he definitely kind of puts it across in a way that it's clear. This is something that some people do. It's not Paul's vibe. This is something that some people do. And most commentators believe that what he's describing here, this idea of baptism for the dead, was something that people would do for Christians who had died before they were baptised. So not the idea that, you know, you, you just get baptised because someone's died and that somehow, even though they've never put their trust in Jesus, you can be baptised now and that, no. That, that's the idea. Again, it's not something we know much about because it just didn't, it didn't carry on. That practice didn't kind of continue into the church. And like I said, I don't think it was that important to Paul. But what he's doing is he's using it to kind of make a rhetorical point here. Why, why would you even bother with all that if resurrection isn't real, if Christ wasn't raised, if we're not going to be? And then Paul gets a bit personal, a bit raw. Verse 30, he says... As for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? These words that we're reading this morning, these are not the kind of calm, comfortable musings of a philosopher in a nice ivory tower somewhere. This comes from a man who's faced death multiple times and will go on to face death again and will eventually go on to lose his life for his Lord Jesus. If you want to get a sense of just how bad it's going to get for him, read the first few chapters of the next letters that we have to the Corinthians, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. He despairs of his life. Things are so hard. He's left behind a life where he had a good status, and instead he's facing death, facing opposition, facing poverty, facing rejection. Why would anyone live like that if they had a choice? If all we have is just this life and then we die, why would you bother doing any of that? Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's where that saying comes from. If there's no resurrection, if there's no future life with God, then have an easy life. Do what you can to make your life good, because it's the only one you've got. And that's a, a logical response. You know, let's not criticize people who don't believe in God and then go out and live like their best life now because that's the only life they believe they have. And don't we want to tell them that there is another life? But it's a perfectly rational way to live if this is our only lives. If this life is all there is, then why would I pour it out for anyone else? Why would I give to anyone else? Other, unless they're going to give to me, unless, you know, unless we're in a relationship. But... Why would I help a stranger? 
And why would I forgive my enemies if, if this life is all there is? I need to just get them out of my life and stay away from them and be with the people that are good to me. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But that is not the way. That's not how Paul's living because he believes in something so much more to come. So now Rosemary's going to come and read our next section, 35 to 54. We're going to look at our immortal bodies versus mortal bodies. Thank you. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With that kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life until it dies. When you sow, you do not plant in the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined And to each kind of seed, he gives his own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead? The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable, it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, and the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Now, is it just me, or was the start of that a bit harsh? Verse 36, he says, How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. 
And I want to reassure you that if you're here this morning and you've got questions and you want to come and ask them afterwards, I'm not going to say to you, how foolish. I think that the, the way Paul's tone there in answering that question actually tells us the tone that the question itself is asked in. There are very different ways of asking the same question, aren't there? We can ask from a place of genuine curiosity. You know, how are the dead raised? What, what would their bodies be like? That's a good question. Or, and we know already, don't we, from earlier in this passage, that Paul's responding to people who are saying there's no such thing as the resurrection. And you can imagine someone with that belief saying, well, if there's a resurrection, then tell me how are the dead raised? What kind of bodies do they have? And in response to that kind of cynical, aggressive questioning, Paul's saying, how foolish. And he uses this analogy of seeds that are planted in the ground that look really different from the plant that grows. And in in these verses now, we're starting to get into a, a world of unanswered questions, things that we're not gonna know by the end of today. If you found the seed of a plant that you'd never seen before, you would have no way of knowing, and I don't think our science yet can work it out, what that will look like. The only way to know what seed it is if you don't recognize it, and if no one does, is to plant it and see what grows. I wonder if you guys, how good you are at recognizing seeds. Johnny will probably get this, our botanist. Uh, James, you've got a picture of some seeds, I think. Any ideas? Oh, look at you all, you're so clever. Yep, these are sunflower seeds. Let's have a look at the sunflower. There it is, it's beautiful. I actually find them really not beautiful. I find the center of them like a bit phobic. But anyway, sunflower seeds, sunflower plant, really different. If you'd never seen a sunflower, or if you'd never been told these are sunflower seeds, you wouldn't know. You wouldn't know that that seed is gonna grow into that plant because they're really different. And Paul doesn't answer that question by going into detail about what resurrection bodies will be like. And it might be because we just don't need to know. The Corinthians don't need to know. We don't need to know. I suspect it's actually probably because Paul doesn't know. I don't think he's in possession of some great revelation about what our resurrection bodies will be like, but he decides to tell no one. I don't think he knows. And that's not a cop-out to say that there are some things that we don't know. All of us, and Paul included, have only ever experienced having a mortal, perishable body. Everyone in this room has evidence of living in a perishable body. I've got wrinkles that I didn't have when I was born. I've got like a dodgy hip at the minute. Like, I know we've all got our ailments, all our things that represent to us the mortality and perishability of this body. We know it so well, and the older we get, the more we know it, and the more we moan about it together. Or maybe that's just my life group, because we're the runners. But, you know, we, we know these mortal bodies. We're familiar with them. But none of us has ever experienced an immortal, imperishable body. Paul included, he doesn't know, he, he doesn't know. We've only seen the seeds, we haven't yet seen the sunflower. And we can trust the things that God does tell us about that, but we can't know what we don't know. And we don't know. 
You know, all four Gospels tell us about the resurrection of Jesus. They tell us that it happened. None of them tell us what that moment actually looked like. We don't know. There are things that we don't know. We weren't there. And Jesus was there. He could have told his disciples, but he didn't. So we're left with some things that we don't know. There are things that we can know. And we've, we looked at some of them at the start of this, didn't we? Those kind of historical facts that we can look at the evidence for and we can decide whether we believe it. And sometimes I think the things that we do know that, that we have evidence for can help us to take on trust the things that we haven't yet seen. And so for me, because of the evidence for these things that happened for Jesus' death, for his burial, for his resurrection, for his appearances. Because of that, I've come to trust him. I've come to trust in God. So then when God tells me what he does tell me, which isn't everything, but in his word we do know some stuff about the future, I can trust in those things that I don't see, that I can't wrap my little mortal brain around because of the evidence for what has happened and because who it is that's telling me. So that future that we look forward to, yeah, there's, there's not a lot of detail about it. But the one who is telling us about it is trustworthy because it's God. We can't imagine it in full because it's, it's an existence that we've never tasted. One day we will, but right now we don't. We're in these mortal, perishable bodies. And I wonder if that's why Paul kicked off with those tangible facts. But you know, just because there are some questions that we don't have answers for, let's not get that confused with there are no answers to any questions. That's not the gospel. And that doesn't get you through the night. There are things that we can know. And then we're left with questions. Paul kind of starts with those reliable, solid facts. And then he climbs up into the wonder, into the mystery into what cannot be fully known yet, but one day will. What do we know? We know that one day there'll be an end. On Remembrance Sunday, we remember peace in the Great War, but we also are so aware, aren't we, that that wasn't the war to end all wars. It's just one of many, and they continue. And there are people in our church family whose lives have been scarred by war. People who've been bereaved in war. People who've been injured. Physically, psychologically, we're we're scarred. Our world is scarred by war. And this passage, it looks back at the facts of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, to look forward to a day when there'll be no more war when there'll be no more death. This is what it says, verse 54. When the perishable, that's us, has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And if if death is like sleep, then the trumpet that we heard about in verse 52 is like the ultimate alarm clock. There's no snooze function on that one. There's no missing it. That trumpet will sound, and in an instant, in a flash, 
will wake up. That sleep will end. In a flash, in a twinkling of an eye. So therefore, what, so what? Where's all this end? Verses 55 to 58. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. And we talked a bit at the start, didn't we, about how what happened with Jesus had been foretold in Israel's scriptures. And here again, Paul is quoting some of those scriptures. So we've got a quote from Isaiah 25, 7 to 8. On this mountain, he'll destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He'll swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He'll remove his people's disgrace from the earth. The Lord has spoken. On this mountain, on that mountain in Jerusalem, God said one day he was going to end the shroud that covers all people, all nations. This prophecy was spoken to a very small people, but it was about all nations. That that shroud that enfolds all people will be destroyed, and that's death. Also, Hosea 13, 14. I'll deliver this people from the power of the grave. I'll redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? You can hear the echo there, can't you? You can hear where Paul's got that from. That taunt to death. Death taunts us through our lives. Through the physical signs in our bodies that we're heading that way. But also, as we lose people, as we grieve, death is that enemy. But here comes the answer to that enemy. Where's your sting? It's gone. You've lost because Jesus is victorious. And then Paul finishes with one of his great therefores. So what does this mean? This big cosmic stuff, these huge events in history, and then this looking forward to this incredible future that we just long for when death is finally destroyed. What does it mean in the middle? What does it mean now? Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. If Christ wasn't raised, then we deserve pity because all this is pathetic. We're deluded fools if Christ wasn't raised. We're giving our lives, we're spending our energy on something that is a house of cards. It's all for nothing. But... The flip side of that is that if Christ was raised, then none of this is in vain. The sacrifices, the hard work, the gritting our teeth sometimes, the kind of biting our tongue, all of it, all the work for the Lord is not in vain because Christ is raised and so we will be. And I just want to encourage you today, if you feel like you're working hard for the Lord... And that can look really different for different people. That doesn't mean if you're in full-time ministry, by the way, 
wherever you are, if you're working hard for the Lord and if you feel like, oh, I'm not seeing the impact of this, let this encourage you. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. And I feel like whenever there are these encouragements in Scripture, it's because we can be tempted to think the opposite. We wouldn't need to be told this unless at times we, we were tempted to think this is all for nothing. But we're told it's not in vain. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. So let this be an encouragement to you today. I'm going to invite the band up now. And as I finish, I just want to suggest some questions that I think will be profitable to all of us, whether you are a Christian or not at all, or you're kind of interested. Here are some things you might want to think about this week. What do you believe happens after death? What do you believe happens after death? And secondly, what or who is that belief based on? What or who is that belief based on? I'm going to pray and we are going to worship together. If you aren't a believer, if you want to talk more about this stuff, I promise, didn't I? I will not tell you it's foolish if you want to come ask me a question. But let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you died for our sin, that you were buried, that you rose again, and that you appeared to so many. And thank you that you have gone ahead of us You are the first fruits. You go where we can't go, but because you've gone there, we can. And thank you that even though there's so much about the future that is kind of veiled in mystery for us, thank you that we can trust you. We can trust in the one who has already and will defeat death. Lord, as we, as we worship you now, we want to base that on, on reality, on the reality, Jesus, of who you are, of what you've done for us. And I pray, God, that your words would stay with us into this week, that we would understand what is the therefore in each of our lives. Amen.